Let's pray. Father, we cannot do this on our own. We need your spirit to teach us. We need your spirit to speak through me. We need your spirit to hear your word. We need your spirit to learn your truth, to know sound doctrine. We need your spirit to believe your truth. And we need your spirit to live it. So we ask that you would abundantly pour your spirit out on us, that you would fill us with yourself. And in doing so, we would grow and learn and know and believe and live in a way that brings you the most honor and the most glory. So we're desperate for your help, God, at all times, always desperate, always in need of you. Don't ever let us forget our dependence on you. And we ask that right now in this hour, you would show up mightily so that lives would change and Christ would be honored and we would be satisfied in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so, what we've learned in the previous seven verses, and what Paul has just taught us, is that the false teachers, so there's false teachers in Ephesus, right? And these false teachers in Ephesus, uh, Paul is aware of them. The church is aware of them now, but they weren't before because that's how false teachers work, right? They trick people. And so Paul leaves Timothy in Ephesus. And Timothy's job is to deal with these false teachers who are preaching false doctrines. And what we learned in previous texts is that the false doctrines that they were preaching were concerning the Old Testament law. So there's a lot of, maybe we could say branches of this false teaching, a lot of elements to this false teaching, but essentially it comes down to a misinterpretation and false teaching about the Old Testament. That's what the heretics in Ephesus were doing. They're taking the Old Testament and mutilating it. I mean, they were telling, the, they were telling Jewish believers in the church in Ephesus, listen, I know you got to believe in Jesus Christ. We agree with that. But also, uh, you need to get circumcised. Oh, but also, you need to follow Moses' law. Oh, and also, I'm going to tell you Old Testament stories. The historical rendering of these stories are really allegorical. That's what they would teach, right? And we talked about this a few weeks ago, that the Old Testament was interpreted allegorically by these false teachers. And what it does is it steals the validity of the Word of God and if you can just, what allegory does is it makes the word whatever you want it to be, right? Well, he doesn't literally mean, you know, this or that command. What he actually means is, and then you can kind of just, because it's allegorical, you can mean, it really means something completely different. And, and then the, the authority of the word of God just comes into question. And at that point, you can make scripture say whatever you want. And this is why we have and take a literal interpretation of Scripture because God communicates to us in literal terms. And that's an important 
distinction to have. And I think in a lot of churches, people, man, I think about that. And if you ask them, I think most people would say, yeah, that makes sense that we would interpret Scripture literally. And so <clears throat> we do. Uh, but when we don't, this is what happens. Heretics rise up. They confuse church members. People are led astray. And this is a big problem for the souls in the church. But it's, it's even more than that. Because what happens is when you let Scripture just kind of be interpreted However you want, allegorically, you can make up any meaning. And making up any meaning, what happens is you discredit the value of the actual history of the Old Testament. And in doing so, what eventually happens is you distort the gospel. And we'll see that today in this text because Paul is going to make this point. He's going to make a point that the Old Testament law has a purpose and the purpose of the Old Testament law boils down to sound doctrine. And sound doctrine is all about the validity and the purity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so ultimately what Paul's point will be is if we get the Old Testament wrong, we're going to get the gospel wrong. So it is massively important that we understand the Old Testament law. And we're not going to dive into all kinds of depths about the Old Testament law, but we're going to try to understand what its purpose is. So Paul's going to hit home for us, drive home, and drive into our hearts the value of the Old Testament, of the law, the value of the law, and its, its importance on what becomes for the church sound doctrine. Now, good theology concerning the law, according to Paul, means having sound doctrine. So you can't have bad theology about the law and call it sound doctrine, because it's just not. And what we'll see by the end of this text is that there's a very, very practical implication about what all this means. So it is very, it's a very theological conversation that Paul is having, but it has incredibly practical implications for the church and how they live. And the ultimate implication that all of this is going to lead to, and we'll see this as the text unfolds, is obedience. So we get to verse 8, and Paul says, verses 8 through 11, I'll read it all. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted." And we know that Timothy's job is to deal with the false teachers in Ephesus, and we know that the reason is to preserve the purity of sound doctrine and to preserve the purity of the gospel. We also know that the false doctrine that the heretics were teaching was this false interpretation of the Old Testament and a false teaching about the Old Testament law and, and ultimately a, a false application of the Old Testament law. Because if you get doctrine wrong, Theologically, you will not live it faithfully. So bad theology equals disobedience. It always will. Because if you don't know what Scripture says, then you won't know how to live. And knowing what Scripture says is sound doctrine. 
And sound doctrine produces faithful living. So I've, I've shared this before, and I love this. One of, the, one of the most interesting perspectives on theology, right? So theology is kind of a funny term because it can kind of have a variety of meanings. Theology is, you know, the study of God, right? Ology, study of. Uh, theology, the root word there is theos, which is Greek for God, so study of God. So theology is the study of God. And, you know, when I was in school, I had, you know, uh, theology classes, like the theology of this or that, right? Um, or classes that were just general theologies, like theology 101 type classes. And so theology tends to be, in our minds, a head thing, right? It's, it's knowledge. It's, it's like intellectual ascent into information about what the Bible says about certain things. And theology tends to be a word we use that kind of, that underneath theology comes a lot of different categories. We have a theology on end times. We have a theology on the church. We have a theology on sin, a theology on man, a theology on God, a theology on the gospel. And I could go on and on and on, right? And so we think of theology as like this intellectual understanding of the Bible. Here's the thing. One of the, one of the elements of theology is faithfulness. Um, one element of theology is obedience. One element of theology is Christ-like living. So theology doesn't just include intellectual knowledge. Theology includes an intellectual knowledge about how you live your life. So to say you have good theology, but to not live biblically is bad theology. So you can have information in your head, knowledge that you know about God, but to not live it is bad theology. Because the theological perspective from the Bible is that knowing it produces living it. So it's not enough just to know it. We also have to live it. But you can't live it if you don't know it. At least not on purpose. So, it's very important that we understand that this is very theological. This text is very doctrinal. But the implication becomes so practical and so real for the Christian who desires to live a godly life and to follow Christ. So kind of like follow me along as we kind of like talk through some of this stuff about Old Testament law and maybe you're thinking, oh, Old Testament law sounds kind of boring. Um, it can be, but like ultimately it leads us to a place where we find what it means to live for Christ and what the gospel really is in our life is more than just this thing that we believed and got saved and then we walk away from. It's, it, it, it's, it's the thing that we believed, but it becomes then, once we believe it, the thing that flourishes in our soul and in our mind and in our heart and pours into our souls from the word of God. The gospel is, from Genesis to Revelation, the gospel is the entirety of the Bible. God himself is the gospel, right? I've said this 10 trillion times from this pulpit. God is the gospel. Why? Because Gospel means good news, and what's the good news? The good news is you get God through Christ. So God is the gospel. The word is the gospel. The truth is the gospel. So the gospel isn't just believing that Jesus died on the cross for sins and rose from the grave, and if you believe, you'll be saved. That is the gospel, but that's the entryway. That's how we get into a relationship with God, and then the gospel becomes so much more to us. It flourishes in the Christian life, and it flourishes when we're in the Word. And when we're in the Word, and the gospel starts to come to life in every aspect of your life. I mean, think about it. Every time you decide on, to, to, 
to do a particular action. Well, should I do this or should I do that? Should I go to this place or go to that place? Should I have this conversation with this person or not have this conversation with this person? Should I confront this sin? Should I not confront this sin? Should I confess sin in my heart? Do I have sin in my heart? Um, any decision that we're making throughout the day, and whether it's a spiritual decision or even what seems like not a spiritual decision, should we go to McDonald's or Burger King today? I don't know. Which one promotes the gospel more? Probably neither McDonald's or Burger King, right? But no matter what decision we're making in our day, we have to put it through the lens of the gospel. And, and I just don't think, as Christians, we tend to think that way. Because I know that I don't. And I'm the person who stands up here every week and tells you to do that, and I know how hard it is for me to do it. And I know how hard it, it's even harder for me to sit down and write a sermon and stand here and preach a sermon and say to you, you should view everything through the lens of the gospel. You should make all your decisions should be filtered through the gospel. And then I go out and I live my week, oftentimes not even thinking about the gospel as I make my 50,000 decisions a day. But that's what we aim for. That's what we need to pursue. That's what we should desire is to have to be so gospel-centric, so biblical in our thinking that every decision and every process and every thought that we have is filtered through the gospel. This is why 2 Corinthians 10.5 says to us, take every thought captive to obey Christ. How many thoughts? Every thought. Some thoughts, not some thoughts, all thoughts. Every thought. Because any thought that you have because actions come from thoughts, right? You can't act out anything unless you're thinking about acting it out. Your actions are a product of your thinking. And your thinking is a product of your knowledge of the word. So we need to know the word so that our thinking is right and our thinking is right, then our actions are right. And that's why we're commanded to take every thought captive to obey Christ. That doesn't just mean, oh, when a really, really heavy, big, clear temptation is presented to me, I need to take that desire, that temptation, that thought that I want to do this sin. My flesh is like, I want to do this sin. And, and that verse, to, that command that we take every thought captive isn't just for those thoughts, those big ones, those hard temptations that come at us and we have to go, I'm going to take that temptation to do that thing, that thought, that sin, and I'm going to capture it with the gospel so that I obey Christ. So that I'm not trapped by this temptation, so I don't fall for this temptation, I'm going to capture it. I'm going to take it captive with the power of the gospel that tells me that I don't have to do that sin anymore. Now that's true, but that command isn't just for the big sins or the big temptations. It's for every thought, is what Paul says. Every thought. Which means every word you speak to your spouse Every activity you do while you're at work is everything you're doing at work honoring Christ. Is everything you're doing in your entertainment, with, with your entertainment or in your free time, does it honor Christ? Does every thought you have honor Christ? And I think we all would be willing to confess and admit that every thought we have does not honor Christ. Right? I mean, there's, <laughs> there's really... I don't want to say there's no way, because of course there's a way, and the way is the gospel. But in my experience, 
I mean, how many thoughts do we have a day? We literally make 50,000 plus decisions a day. And a lot of them, most of them are what we call micro decisions, right? Um, every hand movement, every muscle twitch, every thought, all these, all these decisions are just constantly firing at all times. We are making decisions. Every word you decide to listen to this morning, every thought that comes from every word you hear, those are all decisions. You're deciding things constantly. Most of them you're not even aware of. Most of them are a product of habit. So we're making decisions constantly. There's no way I have purified 50,000 plus decisions every day to the point where all of them are perfect because if that was the case, I wouldn't need Jesus and I clearly do. So I know that all my decisions every day and all my thoughts every day are not captured for the sake of Christ. And I know yours aren't either. So there's two things I want to say about that. Number one, thank God for his grace because... If it weren't for his grace, we would go to hell for every bad thought we have and every ungodly decision we make, whether we intentionally do it or unintentionally do it, we deserve hell. But by God's grace, we are covered. And in all of those ungodly thoughts and sinful, imperfect decisions that we make throughout the day, we are covered by his grace. The other thought that I have is this. That's the purpose of the Christian life. To grow out of disobedience and into righteousness. To grow toward and into obedience. To, to be sanctified by the word of God. And that's the Christian life, sanctification. We are justified by the gospel in Jesus Christ. We know we will be glorified in new bodies in the end. That's a guarantee and a promise that is sealed by the Holy Spirit according to Ephesians chapter 1 verse 13 and 14. But this life we live on this earth... I know it feels long to you, right? I know it feels like a stretch, like, man, this is a long life. But the Bible says life is but a vapor. Here today, gone tomorrow. So, like, we don't have as much time as you might think we have. And with the lack of time that you have, our entire objective is, is to live our life in such a way that every moment, right, so we're talking 50,000 decisions a day, that every decision I make is slightly or drastically modified into righteousness by the power of the Holy Spirit who's working in me. According to Ezekiel 36, 27, it's the Holy Spirit who's doing obedience in me. Okay, according to Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 18, I can't be the one who does righteousness. According to Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 3, I can't be the one who does righteousness. And according to God's word, it's the Holy Spirit who does the righteousness. And so our entire life is a constant submission. Every decision we make every day is a submission to the Holy Spirit who sanctifies every thought and every decision to become more like Christ, to take every thought captive to obey Christ. And in doing so, those 50,000 decisions, maybe one by one, become righteous more and more righteous or more and more sanctified or more and more purified. And as decisions become more purified, you as a whole become more purified because you are a product of all of your decisions and all of your thoughts. That is who you are. You are what you think you are. How you think is who you are. And how you think 
produces what you do. So if all of our thoughts and decisions become sanctified by the Holy Spirit, just maybe one by one, moment by moment, day by day, over a span of, say, 80 to 90 to 100 years of living, well, that's the whole purpose of the Christian life, is to become more like Christ. And if every day, moments being sanctified, thoughts being sanctified, decisions being sanctified, one by one by one, moment after moment, day after day, for many years, we call that growth. And that is the purpose of your existence. That in that growth, you become more like Christ. And the ultimate purpose of you becoming more like Christ is to magnify the glory of God. And when that happens, you will become happier. Or, I'll use a more biblical word, you will have more joy. Or as Psalm 1611 says, you will be satisfied with the presence of God. And so, do not take the command lightly that we are to take every thought captive to obey Christ. That's every thought, every decision, from the most minuscule ones to the biggest ones. And our entire life is dependent on having sound doctrine. Because if I want to get to magnifying the glory of God in my satisfaction in Christ, which comes through a lifetime of being sanctified and all my decisions and thoughts being sanctified constantly throughout my life, in order for those thoughts to become sanctified, I need help. And the help that I'm commanded to get is the Holy Spirit. And where do I find the Spirit but in the Word of God? So how do I, because I just told you, you're not the one who can do obedience. You can't. Your flesh does not want obedience. How How messed up is it that this body you're wearing right now is the one and only thing that wants you to sin? And after this life, it's not going with you. That's some manipulative stuff. Your flesh is super tricky. Your flesh is like, make me happy. Do things that satisfy me. And then we die and we don't have this flesh anymore. And we go to heaven and we're like, whoa, but, but my flesh made me do it. And God's like, what flesh? I don't see flesh. I see you. Where's your flesh? Well, it's back on earth in the ground. God's like, yeah, but that was the point of your life. That was the reason I gave you my spirit to conquer your flesh. This is Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through Somewhere around there. Anyways, so uh, Paul says that the Holy Spirit in you and your flesh are essentially battling each other. The flesh wants the desires of sin and the spirit wants the desires of God and they're at war within yourself. And your flesh is like, satisfy me. And the Holy Spirit's like, no, satisfy me. And we have this daily back and forth struggle with our flesh and with righteousness that we have in Christ. And so this whole purpose of our existence is to conquer this flesh, which has already been conquered in Christ, but now we get to act it out in our sanctification. So we are battling against our own flesh that wants to kill us, that wants us to sin, and then is, is, is not going to be there when we leave. What a manipulative jerk my flesh is. 
just tricking me all the time to sin and then isn't there for the consequences. I, it's, it's not fair, right? It feels like that's not fair, but the reality is it's so beautiful and it's not fair because we know if we got fair, we'd get hell, right? But the beauty of the gospel is God says, in Christ, I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to redeem your soul. And now I'm going to give you my spirit who can conquer and act out the conquering I already did of your flesh. And now you get to act out that conquering daily with 50,000 plus decisions every day. With every thought and every mood and everything that goes through your mind and every decision you make and all these things is your process of beating down your flesh. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, I beat my body lest after preaching I should be condemned for the very thing that I was preaching. And so Paul's saying, I discipline my body. That's what he means when he says that in 1 Corinthians 9. I discipline my body. Because this flesh has to submit to the spirit, and that's my objective, that's my Christian life, that's what sanctification is, is getting my flesh under control of the spirit. That's obedience. And that obedience comes from knowing the word. We cannot live that way. We cannot conquer our flesh. We cannot beat down or discipline our flesh. We cannot grow and be sanctified. We cannot become more righteous. We cannot take every thought captive and take every decision captive to obey Christ. We can't do any of that if we don't have sound doctrine. And you don't get sound doctrine unless you're in the word. So when I talk about it's the Spirit who's doing the work, according to Ezekiel 36, 27, well, Philippians chapter 2 says that we participate in the sanctifying process. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Work out your own sanctification with fear and trembling. That's your role, to work out your sanctification. Then he says in verse 13, for it is God who does the work for his goodwill and pleasure. So we are participating in the sanctification and growth process. And our participation is this, be in the word. Be in the word. And you can say, yeah, oh, and don't forget about prayer. Well, of course, prayer is an important part of your Christian life. Absolutely. But how do you know that you should pray? How do you know you should pray? Who told you to pray? God tells you to pray. Where? In the Bible. So, you don't even know that prayer is important to your life unless you're in the Word, which is part of your sound doctrine. So my point is, if you want to grow and be sanctified and become more like Christ and be satisfied in Christ, that requires from you time in the Word so that your doctrine or your theology becomes sanctified and purified and more gospel-centric, which will produce change daily in minutely in every moment with every decision and every thought being sanctified for the glory of Christ. And that's what spiritual growth is. And so we talk about doctrine today and we talk about the law and you might think, oh, it's just doctrine and theology. But the reality is without that, we won't know how to live. And if we don't know how to live, we won't live in a way that honors God. So at this point in 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul has made it seem, okay, so he's talked about false teachers preaching the a false interpretation of the Old Testament, and it kind of appears at this point like Paul is saying the, the Old Testament law is bad. 
Jesus good, Old Testament law bad. Like it might be interpreted that way because Paul's like crushing these heretics who are preaching the Old Testament law. And because of this possible perspective that he sees in Ephesus, knowing that Timothy or the Ephesians might look at this and go, is Paul saying the Old Testament that the law, that God's law is bad? He says in verse 8, now we know that the law is good. So he clarifies, the law is good. It's not bad. It's the false teachers who mutilate the law. They are bad. And as believers under the new covenant, under, you know, we're not under the old covenant anymore, according to Hebrews chapter 8, verse 13. We're not under the old covenant with its old laws and its old rules and that old covenant, that Old Testament law. And because of that, we tend to think of the law as like this imperfect thing that can't save us. Well, the reality is it can't save us. But it's not imperfect. It's perfect. Galatians 3.21 says, For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. And what Paul's saying is, as he goes on in verse 22 to kind of explain it, is that you can't get righteousness from the law which means the law can't save you. Because if the law could save you, then it would be by the law that you'd have to get saved. So he's clarifying, the law can't save you, but the law is still perfect. And the reason it can't save you is because you can't live it. Verse 8 says the law is good in Galatians 3.21. I just read the middle of 321. At the beginning of 321, in Galatians 321, he says, Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. So when we talk about the promises of God, we've got to understand just a little bit here. Paul, or not Paul, the author of Hebrews says that the new covenant that we have in Christ is better than the old covenant because it's enacted on better promises. So we got better promises in Christ than the Old Testament has. And what Paul is saying here is that the Old Testament law isn't contrary to all the promises of God. Even the new covenant promises in Christ require the old covenant promises in the law. So what Paul is doing is he's verifying that the law fits perfectly into God's righteous will and purposes and plan for how the gospel comes to life. The law is not a mistake. So then what is the purpose of the law if it doesn't save us? The purpose of the law is not to save us, but to show us that on our own, if we try to live out God's standard of perfection and righteousness, we will fail, which ultimately teaches us that we need help. The law is perfect and good, and that's why you can't live it, because you're not perfect or good. That's what Romans 3.10 says. No one is righteous. No, not one. Not even one. No one does good. No one desires God. Not even one is good. No one's good. Not one person is good. So if you, being not good, try to live the law perfectly, you're not going to do it. And that's the purpose of the law. It's perfect. You're not. And what, it's, what God shows with the law is 
God says, here's my law, which I call my standard, and it's perfection, and this is where you need to get if you want to be saved. But God knows we can't be saved by the law, and so we try to live it, and the Israelites try to live it, and they couldn't, and we wouldn't be able to either. And that shows us, that makes us kind of fall on our knees and go, God, you, you set a standard that's just too high for me. How can you expect me to obey you and, 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 and be perfect? I'm never going to get to heaven. I need help. And he goes, that, that, that's exactly what I was aiming for. That moment when you just decided you need my help. And then he presents to us Christ. He goes, Jesus can live that law perfectly. And he did. You don't have to. You just need to be in a relationship with him so he can give you his credit of perfect righteousness of for living that law perfectly. And when you get his righteousness, he also takes away from you your imperfection and your sin. And you get the credit that, of righteousness that gets you into heaven. That's the gospel. And that's the purpose of the law in the gospel. We can't have a gospel without the law. We can't see our dependence on God and our need for Jesus Christ. There is no need for Christ if there is no law that reveals our need for Christ. So the law shows us our need for a Savior. Jesus steps in and, be, and is our Savior. So just because people abuse the law and because people can't fulfill the law and these False teachers misinterpret the law, does not make the law bad. The law is good. We are not. And it is the law that shows us this. Now, Paul makes this point clear when he tells us that the law is good, but he adds a condition to the goodness of the law. He says that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. So how does one use the law lawfully? And Paul answers, he says the law is lawfully used when we, verse 9, understand this, that the law is not laid down for the just. Meaning, the law isn't meant for perfect people, and since no one is perfect, the law is meant for sinners, which Paul goes on to say. The law is not laid down for the just, but for, and then he lists this long list of a variety of different types of sinners and sins, which we'll touch on briefly in a minute. So, what the law does is it sets a standard of living that honors God because that standard is righteous, but none of us are righteous, none of us are good, which we've already established. So how do we properly use the law? Well, we use it to understand sound doctrine. We need to understand the law in order to understand the gospel, which is sound doctrine. So we need to have sound doctrine on the law and sound doctrine on the gospel, and they're interrelated. All of theology is interrelated. As I was talking earlier about all these different theological kind of camps or these different theological thoughts or these different schools of theology, all of them are interrelated with each other. All of God's word teaches us all the theology we need to know and every piece of it is connected to itself. And the word of God is essentially the truth of the word of God is a living organism expressed to us through the living God into us, another living organism so that the church, the body, which is an organism, can live in a way that honors God the most. So the whole point of this, and we see this at, at, um, at the end, uh, in verse 10, after Paul goes through this long list of different types of sinners, he brings it all back to, the, to ensure that the church learns 
knows, believes, and lives sound doctrine. And anyone who does not understand the purpose and the function of the law doesn't know sound doctrine. And that's Paul's point, is you need to understand the Old Testament so that you're not thinking that the law is bad, but that you have sound doctrine, and from your sound doctrine will come faithful living. So how does Paul define sound doctrine in verse 11? He defines it as, in accordance with the glorious gospel of the blessed God. Meaning proper understanding of the law will reveal the true gospel of Jesus Christ, right? So like the gospel that tells us that we cannot live up to God's perfect standard requires an understanding that there's a perfect standard and that perfect standard is the law. And that we all are in need of a savior to take our punishment and give us this credit of perfection. So any interpretation of the law that counters that true gospel is false teaching and that was the problem in Ephesus. And Paul knew he had to deal with the false teachers for the sake of the purity of the gospel because he says at the end of verse 11 that he was entrusted with the gospel. Christ appears to Paul a couple of times and gives Paul the pure gospel and entrusts Paul with that gospel to ensure its purity by sticking to sound doctrine. So what does Paul do to ensure that it's pure? He teaches sound doctrine. And then he tells Timothy, a pastor at the church in Ephesus, your church needs sound doctrine. So Timothy, your job is to teach sound doctrine. And I can just imagine back then that they were probably like, we don't know anything. Teach us anything. We'll believe you. But now, 2,000 years later, you go to churches and what do they want? Tell me stories. Tell me jokes. I heard one preacher, I think I've said this to you guys before, but I've heard one preacher said every eight minutes, insert a joke into your sermon because people are conditioned to watch television and get a commercial every eight minutes. And I was like, what if we conditioned the life outside of the church by the truth instead of letting the world outside of the church influence the church? Wouldn't that be novel? So our idea of what we need has been skewed by years of not knowing sound doctrine, not being in the word. And there are wonderful, amazing churches. And I'm not saying that there's only one right way to kind of function on a Sunday morning church service or that there's only one right way to preach a sermon. Of course, there's a variety of different ways to do things. And I have no problem with stories and I have no problems with jokes at the pulpit at all. No problem with them, with them at all. But the number of churches I've been to where there's like a 20-minute sermon and the sermon is a Bible verse that they read and then they tell a story about their own life from that Bible verse and then they end with a joke and they go, and the application is, and they give you like a three-point application that are just kind of like practical things that aren't even really from the word. And it's go, that, that's not preaching. That's not teaching. And your congregation is going to suffer because you did not give them sound doctrine. And so, I think we're at a point in church history where that is becoming more popular. It has, it has risen, that, that has ultimately come from the rise of the evangelical mentality that started back in, I don't know, 30 years ago or so, where there was just this like, change in the way that we did church. And one of the phrases that we've used for that change We've kind of coined this phrase seeker-friendly. Well, first of all, I don't like that phrase because we ought to be seeker-friendly. You ought to seek lost people and show them the gospel. We should be a seeker-friendly church. I don't like that phrase being used negatively. But it is kind of the phrase that we've coined to kind of convey this idea that there are churches 
that don't teach the depth of God's word, don't teach sound doctrine, but kind of just give a very surface level. And the problem with that is that people can't grow. And this is what Paul talks, or not Paul, I keep saying Paul, but in Hebrews, we don't know who wrote Hebrews, so I don't, it's not Paul. In Hebrews chapter 5, the end of chapter 5, he says, you guys ought to be teachers by now, but instead of eating meat, you still are drinking milk. And that's the product of not knowing sound doctrine. And that's why I make it a great goal of mine to teach you sound doctrine from the pulpit and in all the Bible studies we do, which is why I tell you, go to every Bible study you can in this church. Go to all of them if you can, whatever you can. Get more sound doctrine. Feed your soul. If you're counting on a one Sunday morning sermon to get through the week, I mean, just imagine if you had lunch after church and it's like, that's your meal for the week, good luck. Hope you make it to Saturday. You would be like, that's insane. I got to eat three times a day at least every day. And Jesus was, Jesus was hungry and his disciples came to him in John chapter 4 and said, Jesus, eat. And Jesus like, eat? Food? Pff, I don't need food. My, my food is to do the will of the Father who sent me. Like Jesus had a healthy perspective. Like he even looked at food and said, yeah, obviously I need food to eat. He wasn't saying, oh, I don't never need food. His point was, food isn't what sustains me. The Father sustains me. Doing his will, knowing his will. Sound doctrine is going to sustain you because sound doctrine is going to produce faithful, Christian, godly, Christ-centered living. And you need, so you need to be fed more spiritually than you do physically, and yet we are backwards, right? We feed ourselves with food far more often than we feed ourselves with truth. So, and I'm not bashing eating food or anything. I'm just saying we, we kind of get our priorities out of order when we think that just getting a little bit of biblical sustenance throughout the week is going to kind of get, it might get you by here and there and, and it might be faithful in the moment, but is it really producing the kind of growth that you want and need in your life? So we need to be growing doctrinally, which means we need to be in the word constantly. Which is why we offer a bunch of Bible studies, which is why I want you here at church, which is why we do the things that we do, and which is why I tell you every week, read your Bibles and be in the Word, because that's how you're going to grow. And if you're not, your growth is going to be either stunted or it's going to be slow. I don't want to grow slow. I want to grow fast, as fast as the Lord wills. And all of us are at different places. And if you feel, I'm not trying to, I don't want you to feel guilty about, how, about your growth process. I don't want you to feel guilty about how fast or slow you're growing. I don't want you to feel guilty about how often you're in the Word or not in the Word. Because guilt doesn't come from the Lord. Guilt comes from Satan. I want you to feel convicted. And conviction is encouraging. So you should have a feeling, if you're feeling like, that's me, I'm not in the Word enough. I really know that I'm not in the Word enough. That shouldn't, feel, that shouldn't be a guilty feeling. That should be a conviction, like a, you know, I'm I feeling like the Spirit is telling me I should be in the Word more. That's an encouraging thought, like, okay, I'm going to do it. Instead of being like, oh, I'm such a, oh, Pastor Mark thinks I'm just such an idiot because I never read my Bible, or, he, you know, he's saying that I, I'm just not mature, or I'm not growing, I don't know anything, and, and then I, it feels bad, and then you just kind of like beat yourself up in your head, like, oh, I'm never in the Word, I'm never, you know, 
that's so negative, flip that on its head and start thinking positively. Like, if you're feeling any thought or concern or conviction or what you might identify as guilt, realize that that's the Holy Spirit just tapping you on the shoulder and going, I want you in the Word more. That's it. That's encouraging. So instead of feeling bad about it, what you've done in the past, which you can't change, you can change the next moment. You can change today. You can change tomorrow. You can't change yesterday, so why think about it? You can change tomorrow, so do something about it today. That's an encouraging thought. You have an opportunity to be in the Word again today after church. When you go to, be- uh, when you go to bed or when you put your kids to bed or how- whatever you do, spend some time in the Word with them. Wake up in the morning tomorrow. Be in the Word. And your lunch break tomorrow, you know, bring your Bible with you and spend a few minutes just in the Word. If you have an hour lunch, take five minutes to just be in the Word. And then at night, you go to bed, be in the Word. That's three meals a day. I'd tell you to do more, but <laughs> I don't want you to feel guilty. So, plus, it's between you and the Lord where, where you're at. So, this should be an encouraging conviction, not a discouraging thing. And so, the point is that sound doctrine is a requirement. And it's going to come from being in the Word. Sound doctrine is going to make us a healthy church. And we want to be a healthy church, right? Don't we want to be a healthy organism, the body of Christ, living in a way that honors Him, that requires biblical knowledge and truth and understanding? And this is why I say, I know I want you in the Word by yourself, absolutely. I want you in prayer by yourself, absolutely. You and the Lord and the Word, or you and the Lord in prayer, I want that for your life. Jesus says, go in a closet, shut the door. That's just you and him. And that's wonderful, and I promote that completely. But there is another benefit, a different benefit, that comes from being in the word with the body of Christ where God has placed you. This is why we have Bible studies. This is why we have life groups, so that we're in it together. On Wednesday night, we had family discipleship, and we were in First, we're in first John and Wednesday night family discipleship. And I... Th- think we read about like 10 or 12 verses or something and I don't think we even got through one did we get through the no we didn't even get through one okay we we kind of like we laid some foundation for that but we ended up talking about all kinds of different theological ideas and themes and things and it was really good and those conversations and though that teaching and that time of learning and growing together never would have happened if I was by myself it happened because I was with the body and if I'm teaching that family discipleship with the Bible and someone asks a question and they ask a question, that question, that means that that person has a need, a spiritual need that they bring to the table and then the whole body benefits from it. But the whole body doesn't benefit from it if the whole body's not there. And again, that's not meant to make you feel guilty. I do not want you coming out of guilt. That's not going to produce good things in your heart and soul. I want you to desire the word. I want you to pray about it. I want you to be there. I want to teach you the word. I want to spend more time teaching sound doctrine to all of you every day. There's a kid that is on my basketball team and he comes to, I do a little Bible study uh, with some boys, with my son and a couple other young guys and I do it every week, and there's a guy, there's a boy on our basketball team who comes to it, and he came up to me this week because basketball's ending this week, and 
And he goes, hey, after basketball, are we going to do something different that's a little more like one-on-one -on -one discipleship? I was like, if that's what you want to do, I said, does that mean that you're going to not come to our Bible study together, but then you and I will do one-on-one? -on -one? He goes, oh, no, what I want is to do more. And I just looked at him and I was like, I love you. I was just like, so satisfied. I was like, you want more? Oh, you couldn't have made me happier, man. Like, you want to do the Bible study and get extra time with me just one-on-one? -on -one? You want double the discipleship? That's the kind of heart and mentality and mind that God desires from us. Now, in order to live a life that honors God, we need to have sound doctrine. To have sound doctrine, we've got to be in the Word, and I just want you to want to be in the Word. And so, the question is, as we kind of look at this text, and i got to... Sorry, I got a little off topic, so I'm going to kind of skip some chunks here. Um, there's this list that Paul has in 1 Timothy, right, of types of sinners. Lawless, disobedient, ungodly, sinners, unholy. Notice that those are very vague in general. And then he gets very specific, profane. Those who strike their fathers and mothers, murderers, sexually immoral, homosexuals, enslavers, liars, perjurers. Okay, very specific group of sins. And then, at the end of the list, he gets vague in general again. He says, and whatever else is contrary to what? Sound doctrine. So he wraps it all up and brings it back to sound doctrine. The whole point is sound doctrine. Your life ought to look like sound doctrine. You won't live in a way that is sound unless your doctrine is sound. And what this also tells us is that every one of us fits this list. Because every sin... Any and all sin is contrary to sound doctrine. So no one is excused from the list because we all have sin, which is contrary to sound doctrine. Meaning all people must recognize what Paul's teaching us. If any of our lives were measured against the law, we would be damned. All of us. Yet by God's grace, we are no longer measured by our own righteousness of trying to achieve the law but instead we are measured by Christ's righteousness and therefore we are not condemned by the law but free from the law in Christ and free from sin in Christ and free from sin does not just mean that we're free from the consequences of sin we are because of Jesus but that it also means we are free from the burden of sin. We're, sin. We're, we're free from slavery to sin. Sin no longer masters us. We see this in Romans chapter 6. Sin no longer masters us. And therefore, being in Christ and having the Holy Spirit, we can actually live obediently. We couldn't do that before. Why couldn't the Jews obey the Old Testament law? Well, they didn't have the Holy Spirit like we have. So they couldn't do righteousness. We, in Christ, get the Holy Spirit, and we, now we can do righteousness. And that is Paul's implication here. We should not be doing anything that is contrary to sound doctrine, and all sin is contrary to sound doctrine. And anything that is contrary to sound doctrine is not in accordance, this is what he says, in accordance with the glorious gospel. Meaning, though we have not, we are not condemned by the law, and we do not have to live according to the Old Testament law, we do have to live according to the New Testament law, which is the law of love, or what Paul says is the law of Christ. Which is a law of grace, but also a, if you read the New Testament, a law, and we don't call it law, 
But a 27 books filled with commands. Hundreds and hundreds of commands that we have to follow and obey. Sounds like a law to me. So we're not free from obedience. We're not no longer having to obey the law doesn't mean we don't have to obey at all. We just have new rules. And we have power in us, the Holy Spirit, who empowers us to obey those laws, to obey the rules, to become obedient, because without the Spirit, we can't. So we are no longer condemned in our disobedience, which is the blessing of the new covenant in Christ. Remember the Old Testament, they're condemned for their disobedience. We aren't condemned for our disobedience because Christ has covered our disobedience and is training us into obedience. But the very law of love that has freed us from the consequences of sin is the same law of love in Christ that enables us to live free from sin. So what Paul is getting at here is not just that we have sound doctrine, but that if you have sound doctrine, your obedience will match. And it will magnify and be in accordance with what he says, the glorious gospel. So what good is it to us to live free from the Old Testament law and live free in the new covenant in Christ if we just ignore obedience because someone else paid for our punishment? That's foolishness and it's sin. And Romans 6 says, should we continue to sin so that grace may abound? By no means. He repeats it in chapter 6, verse 1 and verse 15. And Hebrews 10 says that that's evidence that you don't have sound doctrine. And he even says it's probably evidence that you're not saved, possibly. So obedience is our aim, because obedience is the product of sound doctrine. So obedience is our aim, the glory of Christ is our goal, and sound doctrine is the means by which any of this is possible. Meaning, we must learn sound doctrine, we must know sound doctrine, we must believe sound doctrine, and we must live sound doctrine, which is revealed in the practicality of our daily obedience. So instead of thinking of obedience as demanding, because let's be honest, when you hear rules and laws, it feels like pressure, right? Okay, I know how my kids feel when I you know, come home, I'm like, all right, boys, come here, listen. I need to clean the basement, pick up all your clothes, do the laundry, and do the dishes. And they, I can feel that the whole room just changes. The atmosphere changes. They can feel the pressure. Oh, I got a rule I got to follow now. I got commands I have to obey. And it's tense and it's pressure. Obedience feels demanding. It feels like pressure. It feels like someone's pushing down on your shoulders. Do what I say. Do what I say. And how we view that all depends on how we view God. So instead of thinking of obedience as this demanding, even though it is demanded of us and commanded of us, instead of thinking of it as demanding, think of obedience as your gift to God to show your appreciation, thankfulness, and gratefulness for saving you. Because that's the gift he gave you, is obedience. You can't do it without him. He gives you himself and says, now do it for me. Give me the gift of appreciation by doing the thing that I'm now enabling you to do. Without me, you can't do it. But because of me, you can. So do it, and you'll satisfy me. And as you've satisfied me, I will satisfy you. If we were held to the law, we'd be doomed. But instead, he covers the cost of the law. 
in Christ, and we are viewed by God as Christ, perfect and righteous. And he commands our obedience. And if that's true of you, that you are a believer, you follow Jesus, you're saved, and you have the Holy Spirit, then do as Jesus commands us in John 15, 8, and prove it with obedience. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you this morning because on our own, we are in deep trouble. Um, if it's us versus the law, we lose. We just can't live up to your standard. And what a beautiful reality that you have given to us the most wonderful gift that could possibly exist, which is yourself in Christ. And because we have Christ, we now have your spirit who works obedience out of us and in us and through us and also brings us, he brings us to your word and then he teaches us your word so that we can have sound doctrine and live sound lives. Make that a reality in this church. Make that a reality in my heart and in their heart and in our lives. We cannot do this without you. We are desperately in need of you and totally dependent on you and ask that you would do a mighty, mighty work in this church strengthening this organism you call your body and your bride. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.